Hello, it's me, Damien Barr, popping up for Pride Month with a wee present for you. Here is a podcast of a salon that we did last year with Garth Greenwell. He was launching Cleanness. His new, is it a novel? Is it a collection? Is it a song cycle? You'll have to listen and wait and see. But this was just almost a year ago when we were all getting our heads around how to do salons during lockdown. Um, and this is one of our one of our very first. Garth is absolutely beautiful as a writer and has the most divine reading voice and of course he is a trained singer so that really helps too and I just thought I'd look back at my reading notes for cleanness to see what was striking me as I was reading it as it's as it's just over a year the character in the novel who is the character from the first novel is finishing up teaching in Sofia Bulgaria and he's going back to America which as he says is not home and the book is very sexy very queer, very liberated and liberating. Uh, it's got all the hotness and it's just a terrific collection and talking to Garth was magical and I hope you enjoy this free podcast for Pride Month, whoever you are, wherever you are. Thank you for being in touch with us and for sharing your stories and for giving us time in your life. If you'd like to hear more from us, you can subscribe to our podcast, which is at www.theliterarysalon.co.uk or you can check us out on YouTube or on Instagram. However you find us, we love to hear from you. So get in touch and take good care of yourself this divine Pride Month. Happy reading. Good evening and welcome to Salon Live Online. Welcome back to all our regular Salonistas. Shout outs to Niven Govind and Sarah Perry and Tracy Thorne, who I know are watching. To Maz in Amsterdam, John in Swindon and David in London. And a particular welcome to those Salon virgins. Yes, virgins. Thank you all so much for being here. I'm Damien Barr and I'm your host for this evening. Cheers. This is a quarantini, which is um, 50% gin, 50% vodka, and 100% medicinal. I hope you're all comfortable and settled and suitably lubricated reading this book where every character is alert to and even wary of touch definitely felt like a breach of social distancing in this current moment. Garth Greenwell charmed us all at our salon in the Savoy with his debut novel, What Belongs to You. Absolutely incredible. And you can catch my interview with him on our podcast. As you'll hear in a moment, he reads his prose as beautifully as he writes it. His next book, Cleanness, places its arms around the shoulders of his handsome, sensuous debut and confronts many of the same themes and concerns, but is very much its own thing. Like his first book, Cleanness features an unnamed American teacher working in Sofia who falls for various men with whom he experiences pleasure and pain and a certain amount of pleasure in pain. It's a New York Times bestseller, an instant classic, and a very helpful manual for anyone interested in nipple play or semicolons. Please welcome, all the way from Iowa, Garth Greenwell. Hi, Hi Garth. Hi, how are you? I'm very good, how are you? Good, thanks. It's lovely to see you. It's very lovely to see you too. I'm sorry that we're not together in the Savoy. Yeah, no. me too. Me too, but hopefully sooner than later, yeah? Well, you were going to be our writer in residence there for a month, weren't you? I was really looking forward to it. It was going to be the most fun. We were going to try and put you up in room 346, which is where Oscar Wilde feasted with Panthers. I mean, it's the only room I would accept, so... <laughs> we would have changed the sheets since then. Just so you, or maybe you wouldn't like that, I don't know. You know. <laughs> love a little, a touch of filth, I guess. Um, we're going to chat in a minute, but I wondered if you could start by reading us a couple of bits from Cleanness, because it would be just such a delight to hear you do it. And I know you did the audiobook as well, and that's next on my list, because it would be wonderful if you could read those tonight. Sure. I'm so happy to. Um, and thanks to everyone out there who's joining us virtually. Um, so, you know, if I had to say kind of in a word what I think this book is about, I think I would say um, that it's about intimacy and intimacies of, of various kinds. Maybe two of the most important 
our sex for one, um, but also the weird intimacy that can develop between teachers and students and between teachers and classes. So I thought I'd read two short bits that um, sort of engage both of those experiences, starting with teaching. Um, this is from the third chapter of the book, which is called Decent People, and it takes place in the context of um, kind of extraordinary street protests in Sofia in 2013. And um, the narrator is sort of having a class with his students that has become a conversation about these protests and a kind of larger conversation about um, what it means, what it means to sort of be in a world, what, what your national identity could mean um, and where such a national identity comes from. And one student has said, you know, um, our ideas of nation are all from the past and how do we know how to be in the present? So that's the context. The conversation getting a little out of control, the students are getting heated. So the teacher intervenes. Poetry, I exclaimed, sitting up straight in my chair, which had the effect I wanted. They all turned to me silent, less obedient than bewildered. I looked up, at, I looked at them a moment, a kind of sujura, and then I repeated it, poetry as though it were the obvious answer to a question, the answer they already knew. That's what poets can do, I said, poets and artists. They give us ideas to buy into for whole countries to buy into. Like Whitman, I said, whom they had all studied, he was part of the 10th grade curriculum. My own 10th graders were reading him now, Song of Myself, and I found it was a different poem because of the protests, which became the context for our reading. Though I had read it dozens of times, I read it differently now. Think of what he wants to do in that poem, I said. And when the country was at war with itself, absolutely broken, he wants to make an image of America anyone can buy into. Like that miraculous section. And I used that word, miraculous. I was getting excited. I was getting swept up in Whitman, as I always did. It was what I loved about him and what I mistrusted, too, the feelings he could arouse that could swamp judgment. That section where all he does is name things, I said, well, not name, not things, people. It's just a list. He wants it to include everyone. He wants to find a place for everyone. An equal place, I went on though I was talking too much now, and a place in his affection too. There are those wonderful moments he puts in parentheses like a whisper, do you remember, where he tells us he loves the person he's just named. That's what he thought democracy was, I said, a poem that named things and made an occasion for you to love them. He wanted to stitch America up, I said. He wanted to break all the divisions down. There's only one time he does the opposite. It's in the same list where he puts a prostitute right next to the president. Do you remember? None of them did, but they were paying attention, less interested maybe in the poem or what I was saying than in my excitement, which they observed like some freakish natural phenomenon, I thought. There's a crowd making fun of the prostitute, I said, and that's the one time Whitman separates himself. He says, they laugh at you, but I do not laugh at you. And that's the problem I hurried on. That's the problem with democracy, the danger of crowds. It's the problem with the protests too. How do you take a crowd and turn it into a populace? How do you take the voice of a crowd and turn it into the vox populi, the voice of a people? I glanced at the clock and saw that class was almost over. The bell would ring soon. People have to come together without losing their ability to think. Whitman calls it a thoughtful merge. The whole idea of democracy depends on it. And look, I don't think a poem can do what he thought it could. He wanted his poem to be America like magic. He wanted his poem to fix everything that was wrong with the country, which was a lot, I said trying to lighten the tone, which still is a lot, but what he did was to make an image of America that still feels like something I want to buy into. It still feels like the best image of ourselves. I stopped then, not knowing how to go on, and I was grateful when the bell rang. It let me raise my voice and say, so go be poets, which released them from my overheated feeling and gave them permission to laugh. Um, 
Jinx. <laughs> People are applauding all around the world right now. That was incredible. Thank you very much. That's a lovely thought. Um, it's true. And then this, uh, this second very short passage um, comes from the second chapter of the book, which is called Gospodar. And Gospodar is the Bulgarian word for master or lord. Um, and the narrator has... Uh, He's meeting a man um, whom he's chatted with online, and they're meeting for what at least begins as um, a rough encounter, but a consensual one. So he's in this man's apartment. It was a comfortless room. There was an armoire of some sort, a table, a plush chair, all from an earlier era. These spaces are passed from generation to generation. People can spend their whole lives amid the same objects and their evidence of other lives as almost never happens in my own country or never anymore. And yet it was impossible to imagine friends or family gathering there. I stood for a moment just in front of the door and then the man told me to kneel. I could feel him looking at me in the clinical light, inspecting or evaluating me. And when he spoke, it was as if with distaste. No go see the bell, he said. You're very fat. And I looked down at myself, at my thighs and the flesh folded over them, the flesh I have hated my entire life. And though I remained silent, I thought, not so very fat. It was part of our contract that he could say such things and I would endure them. I wasn't as fat as he was anyway. He was larger in person than in the photos he had sent, as you come to expect, larger and older too. He was as old as my father, or almost anyway, nearer to him than to me. But he stood there as though free of both vanity and shame, with an indifference that seemed absolute and, in my experience of such things, unique. Even very beautiful men are eager to be admired. Wherever you touch them, they harden their muscles, turning their best angles to the light, but he seemed to feel no concern at all for my response to him, and it was then that I felt the first stirrings of unease. He neither spoke nor gestured, and the longer he appraised me, the more I feared that having come all this way, I would be told to leave. It wasn't the lost time I would resent, but the waste of the anticipation that had mounted in me over the several days I had chatted with him online an anticipation that wasn't exactly desire, as it wasn't desire that I felt now, though I was hard, though I had been hard even as I climbed the stairs, even in the taxi that had brought me there. He was an unhandsome man, though in the way of some older men he seemed solid in his corpulence, thick through the chest and arms. His face was blunt featured, generic somehow. It was clear that he had never been attractive, or rather that his primary attraction had always been the bearing he had either been born with or had cultivated, the pose of uncaring that seemed to draw all value into itself that seemed entirely self-sufficient. He would never be called a faggot, I thought, whatever the nature of his desires. Then, to my relief, Elatuka, he said, come here, having decided to keep me, at least for a while. When I began to rise, he snapped, Dolu, stay down. And I moved across the space on all fours, the carpet featureless and gray and coarse. When I reached him, he took my hair in his hand and lifted me up onto my knees, not roughly, maybe just as a means of communication more efficient than speech. I had told him I wasn't Bulgarian in one of our online chats, warning him that when we met there might be things I wouldn't understand, but he had asked none of the usual questions. He seemed not to care why I had come to his country, where so few come and fewer still stay long enough to learn the language, which is spoken nowhere else, which even here, as the country shrinks, is spoken by fewer people each day. It's not difficult to imagine it disappearing altogether, the language and the country both. We'll understand each other, he had said, don't worry. And maybe it was just to ensure this understanding that he had taken me in hand, firmly but not painfully guiding me to my knees. He let go of my hair then, freeing his hand to move down the side of my face, almost stroking it before he cupped it in his paw. It was a tender gesture, and his voice was tender too as he said, Kuchko, 
addressing me as if solicitously and tilting my head so that we gazed at each other face to face, his fingers flexed against my cheek, almost in a caress. I leaned my head into him, resting it on his palm as he spoke again in that tone of tenderness or solicitude, tell me, Kuchko, tell me what you want. And I did tell him, at first slowly and with the usual words, reciting the script that both does and does not express my desires, and then I spoke more quickly and more searchingly, drawn forward by the tone of his voice what seemed like tenderness, although it was not tenderness, until I found myself suddenly in some recess or depth where I had never been. There were things I could say in his language, because I spoke it poorly, without self-consciousness or shame, as if there were something in me unreachable in my own language, something I could reach only with that blunter instrument by which I too was made a blunter instrument, and I found myself at last at the end of my strange litany saying again and again, I want to be nothing, I want to be nothing. Good, the man said, good speaking with the same tenderness and smiling a little as he cupped my face in his palm and bent forward, bringing his own face to mine, as if to kiss me, I thought, which surprised me, though I would have welcomed it. Good, he said a third time, his hand letting go of my cheek and taking hold of my hair again, forcing my neck farther back. And then suddenly, and with great force, he spat into my face. Exterior. I'm just, I can, I can feel and see myself blushing. <laughs> it's a good reaction. I like that reaction. I mean, it's just a really good job. The camera's only showing the top half, I think. Um, we, uh, we talked earlier um, about how you were so surprised um, by the response uh, to what belongs to you, the, the fact that people wanted to talk, talk so much about the sex that was in that book. And, so many of the reviews for this book are also, you know, really, really interested in and, 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 and looking at the sex. But what do you think that, that first response was about? And what was your response to that response as a writer? Yeah, well, I mean, the fact that there was so much talk about sex and what belongs to you, I mean, it wasn't about the book, you know? I mean, the book did not have a ton of sex in it. Um, maybe, you know, three or four pages of explicit sex writing. So I think it said more about, um, you know, the state of publishing and mainstream publishing in the US that, and maybe also in Britain, that, um, you know, that seemed in some way daring. Um, mm -hmm. I guess though, I mean, if I, you know, it's nice to think that maybe it was responsive to something else in the book, that like, even though sex wasn't an explicit subject matter, that maybe there was something about the style of the book, something about, you know, the sentences themselves that felt kind of mimetic of, desire and mimetic even of sex itself. Like, I mean, that's a flattering thought and I'm suspicious of flattering thoughts, but you know, maybe that's also true. You know, books can be sexy without being super explicit. Um, but in cleanness, I wanted, um, I wanted to do much more than I had with explicitness. Uh, we'll come on to talk about your particular fetish for semicolons um, and the sexual structure of sentences later. Um, but let's just talk about, about what cleanliness is for a moment. Um, you've been asked, is it, is it a novel, is it a collection of short stories? And you've said that it's a, a, a leader. I hope I'm saying that correctly, a leader, leader, leader. A, a cycle of songs. What does, what does that mean for you? Well, so, yeah, so, um, I mean, before I ever imagined myself as a writer, I mean, my education in art um, was in music and was very fortuitous. I mean, I was not um, raised in an artistic household, quite the contrary. Um, my family were tobacco farmers. I was the first generation raised off the farm. Um, it was a high school choir teacher who heard something in my voice and started giving me lessons after school. And, um, you know, very quickly in my education, um, I started singing not just individual songs, but songs that were strung together. And my first experience of how you can take pieces and build them into larger holes and art was in singing things like Schubert. Um, and, you know, when I was working on this book and writing these scenes and these chapters that are, you know, somewhat autonomous, um, that, you know, feel to me kind of like nodes of intensity. And then I was thinking about, you know, what kind of relation they could exist in. 
Um, the model for me, the model that made sense was the idea of a song cycle and the idea that these nodes of intensity could be held in like an important relation, not an arbitrary relationship, like a mm. compilation, a fixed relationship, but that mm. what, what held them in place was not, you know, novelistic cause and consequence of plot and was mm. not chronology, but instead things like key and motif and tonality, you know, musical structures. And so, you know, as, as sort of conversations, we were having conversations about what to call the book, um, and you know, that label, maybe because I, I wasn't ever a fiction writer until very recently. So like short story versus novel just isn't, it's not a super important or meaningful distinction for me. And I'm happy for people to call the book whatever they want, but my model right. is a song cycle, a leader cycle, yeah. Okay. It's amazing when you hearing you read actually, there's a, there is this tremulous tone of your breath underneath your voice, um, which when you know you're a singer, you can absolutely detect it. And I also hear it in your sentence structure, that nesting of clauses, that very Jamesian accumulation, um, which, which, you know, where there are moments where we can breathe and, and, then, and then move forward again. You can, you can definitely hear that um, in, in the book. So you're happy for people to think of it as a, as a song cycle. Um, all the songs that are in there, let's think of them that way, um, were there songs that you didn't, or that you wrote that didn't make it in there? So and which there, did you write first? Right. So, um, so I did not write them in the order in which they appear in the book, with the exception of the first. The first chapter was the first um, of the chapters that was written, and it was actually written long ago. Um, and it was written as I was writing "What Belongs to You." And you know, I understood pretty early on that "What Belongs to You" needed to be really a streamlined container, that it needed mm. to be sort of as obsessively focused as the narrator is on Mitko, this man he's in love with or desires, and, um, mm. and that it had to sort of leave out a lot of the world. And one reason that that felt bearable to me was that um, I knew there were these other containers. Um, I didn't write chapters that then were sort of left on the cutting room floor, but there were certainly ideas, you know, as um, it was actually after writing Gospodar, which I read from, um, that story, which is about being the submissive in an S&M encounter, when I finished it, I knew I would have to write a story from the perspective of a dominant in an S&M encounter. And I wouldn't write that story um, until, you know, for years and years, and it's uh, the chapter called The Little Saint. Um, but the fact that Gospodar called it into existence, called into existence the book. And then there was a structure that was sort of putting pressure. And so there were ideas for other things to explore that, you know, the book, let me know, wouldn't fit again, you know. Such as what? Um, I don't, you know, I, I don't know, other encounters, you know, I guess. I mean, um, you know, I mean, I can write sexual encounters after sexual encounter. And, um, you know, I don't feel in any way that this book exhausts, you know, the possibilities of sociality in sex. Um, but I don't think any book needs to exhaust that. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, there was a, there's a way in which I hope that these nine chapters speak to each other and create a world that at a certain point to me did come to, to come to feel complete. Mm. It definitely, but when I read those last few sentences, I reread them again last night and um, where he lies down with the dog and, um, you know, spoilers people, um, he lies down with the dog who is dirty and the dog leaves a mark on him and he says he'll leave, he'll let the mark stay. It feels in some sense like a benediction um, to me as a reader. It feels like an acceptance of somehow original sin um, in a way. I'm so fascinated. Um, I can almost hear Sarah Perry nodding. I'm, I'm so fascinated by the way that religion comes into this book um, in ways that are right at the top. You know, we've got the saint, we've got the little saint, we've got a town called Salvation. Um, but so much of the book is about the actions that are performed, the rituals are performed, which give us some sense of meaning beyond ourselves. Um, and these can be on our knees in prayer or on our knees sucking cock. And I love the way that you use the language of virtue um, to explore that sexual space. And it, it made me think about you um, as, a, as a writer and as a person and made me want to ask you, you know, what, what, is your relationship, if any, with faith? 
Well, I mean, um, so in one, there's one way of answering that question that's very easy, which is that mm -hmm. I am 100% an atheist, yeah. affirmative, assertively atheist. Um, the, the truer, and that is true, um, also true is the answer that says I am someone equipped with a devotional temperament and um, someone equipped with a devotional temperament without an object of devotion. And that in some sense, you know, when I look at my life, which is this strange sort of zigzag of fits and starts and failures and um, second and third attempts, you know, one way of maybe making sense of that is to think that that is the shape of a life of someone with a devotional temperament seeking an object of devotion. Um, at a formative point in my life, um, sort of Catholic theology was something I became obsessed with. When I was doing my PhD, I was actually working, my thesis was going to be on um, uh, modern poetry and theology. And, um, you know, so, and it's still the case that like, one of my very favorite writers is St. Augustine. Um, and a lot of my equipment is, I think, in, I think this is true of a lot of us, you know, a lot of my equipment um, sort of has this religious tinge to it. Um, the title of the book, Cleanness, is, you know, a reference to a medieval English poem which retells Bible stories. And um, one of those stories is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And, you know, I wanted to think about this kind of moral equipment um, that, you know, I'm just, that I have, you know, that I can't choose not to have, mm -hmm. in which ideas of cleanness and filth have a certain valence. But I wanted to see if, you know, without um, utterly giving up that structure or giving up things that that structure makes possible, I could really trouble it. And I hope that what this book does and, you know, that last scene, um, I mean, I think it is a blessing. It felt like a blessing to write it. It was, a, it was not a scene I had planned. Sort of this dog, mama dog, <laughs> appears to me like an angel, you know, like that's how it felt when I was writing it, you know, that mm. she appeared to me like an angel. And that it is this benediction, but I wanted really to suggest, and I hope the book suggests, that, you know, these dichotomies by which we try to organize our lives and organize our moral thinking are radically inadequate to our lives. And that there is a way, as with all dichotomies, that, you know, if one goes deep enough in cleanness, one finds filth. And if one goes deep enough in filth, one finds cleanness. So in a story like Gospodar, where the narrator, you know, early in the story finds himself saying, I want to be nothing, I want to be nothing. At the end of the story can be reclaiming his human face. You know, this way that, you know, things that seem to us like negation, that there's a way we can make them productive. Well, I think it's really interesting hearing you talking about that sort of being a person in search of a, a devotional object, because so much of what we understand about the way the dynamics are written is that, you know, this, a man is seeking to make himself of service, of use, and to be the most useful object he can be, whether that's a throat or whether that's an arse or whether that's a cock. Um, and that, that there, it, there's, a, there's a functionality to it, but there is also something in there, which is also in the religion thing, which is about an abnegation, an erasure of the self. You know, our central character is very much in his encounter seeking to escape um, uh, from, from his self. Um, and even when he explores religion, he talks about it being a system that would destroy and, you know, and displace the, the kind of person that he is. And I wondered if you could talk about, a bit more about, about that. Sex is a, a creative force, but also is a, a, a force that destroys. Yeah, so, I mean, this is another one of these dichotomies, you know, this idea of affirmation or negation, creation versus destruction, that I hope the book troubles. You know, I mean, there is this old, you know, Freudian notion, right, that associates eros, that associates the erotic with the life yeah. force and associates, you know, and then there's Thanos, you know, the desire for death. Um, I think um, something that queer people understand, uh, I think maybe particularly well, and I don't think just queer people who came of age at the height of the AIDS crisis, um, that, you know, eros and Thanatos in sex, they come together. And not just in sex, you know, I'm interested in, 
I mean, and in some way, what sex, one of the things sex stands for in the book is a kind of limit experience. You know, these moments mm. where we do feel like we are brought to the limit of ourselves. And then yeah. that's tantalizing because the question is, what will we find if we go past that limit? Well, mm. that's a question that can be asked again and again in sex. It's also the question that's asked in mystical experience, you know. Mm. Um, so in some way, you know, it's not an accident that we have one lexicon for devotion. And that, you know, the same lexicon functions for us with, you know, religious and sexual desires. Um, these are both ways, I think, of exploring the limits of the self and exploring what might happen. You know, how, if those limits are crossed, if the self is shattered, mm -hmm. then what new possibilities are created? What new possibilities of sociality? So that, you know, in The Little Saint, which is a place where, you know, I think the technology of S&M works, um, this technology of transformation, you know, this, what seems like a very brutal encounter um, that is brutal for both parties, you know, occasions this like radically new sociality, this radically new way of looking, looking at the other face to face and also brings both of them to laughter and to joy and to tenderness. And that's interesting to me. What happens if we go to the limit and then we go further? Mm. Yes. Um, although, of course, in the second, in, in Gospodar, a character finds, finds a limit um, and has to escape it only to realize that he thinks he's going to go back to that. Again, there are, there are patterns, again, musical patterns in, in his behavior um, of repetition. I'm interested in um, the, the attitude that our, our, our unnamed American narrator takes with him to Sophia, the kind of how he seems to the, the people that he teaches and the people around him to be more liberated, he, he comes from a place of freedom. He can go back to that place. They, they talk about feeling trapped and, and our, our narrator has to be more wary of touch while he's there. Um, there there's, this, there's this kind of limit placed on him. And, and there's something in there about, on both of those levels, about the, the queer experience that sort of feels universal. And we mostly experience it when the characters are having their limits tested or when they feel free. Um, so in, in What Belongs to You um, and in Cleanness, um, there's um, a line about feeling part of humanity um, and in, in Cleanness it's about uh, feeling like you're a man for the first time or feeling connected to everybody else. When you transcend and escape those limits, um, I suppose what I'm trying to ask you is, is that as a queer writer, um, is part of what defines you having limits to write against? And how could you continue to be a queer writer if we were, say, you know, totally emancipated from, from the word dot? What would, that, what would that queerness mean or look like? Yeah, so um, I guess I have a lot of thoughts in response to that. And, I'm sure. Uh, it, was, it was a long question. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Some may the, say garbling. <laughs> no, not garbled at all. Um, packed with brilliance. But, you know, one of them is to push against this idea that there is that, you know, a constitutive element of queer identity in a way that is not true for all identities has to do with repression. Um, you know, I, there's an argument to be made that any identity formation, you know, has to do with encountering limits and encountering repression. Of course, of course. Of course. Here for that. But, you know, queerness is an affirmative identity. And queerness, you know, I mean, when I think about queerness, like everything I love in my life has to do with queerness. And... Um, so I push back against the idea, that question of like, what would we write about if we were totally emancipated? On one hand, I think, well, you know, we would write about everything, you know, that in some sense, you know, I mean, all of the shapes that queer lives can take, you know, all of the shapes that human life can take, I mean, when put under the peculiar pressure that is, you know, um, the aesthetic imagination, the literary imagination, all human value is infinite. You know, and, and these are not exhaustible experiences. You know, the experience of, the, of everyday domestic happiness. You know, the, the central story in the book, The Frog King, was a story in which, you know, I wanted to challenge myself to write happiness. And I wanted to write, like, unexceptional happiness. Like, as someone who is drawn to extreme experience, I wanted to say, but what about this middle place where actually most of us live our lives? And to challenge myself to sort of live up to that belief that actually, you know, any human experience, that literature is not about subject matter, that art is not about, you know, a particularly valenced experience. It's instead about the kind of 
gaze one brings, the kind of intelligence, the kind of um, sight. I mean, I think literature is a way of seeing. So I would say that. On the other hand, I would say none of us is ever in any danger of being totally emancipated. Like we will always have limits to push against. To be a no. queer person, one feels that intensely, you know, to be a queer person is to feel oneself under surveillance all the time. And that's true in Sofia, Bulgaria. It's also true in Manhattan, where mm -hmm. if you are a queer person in Manhattan, you have a block by block sense of how safe you will be if you take your partner's hand. So, um, and then I would say just universally in terms of emancipation, you know, one of my favorite quotes, which actually I think is from Eudora Welty, but maybe that's wrong, but I think it's Eudora Welty, who says the imagination is not free but bound. You know, or Stravinsky, who said he couldn't compose a note until he had a sense of limitation. Like art thrives on limitation, mm. but those limitations are not just sort of social limitations. Like, I mean, we are finite beings possessed of something that feels to us infinite. So like limits are built in. Um, let's get into those sentences. One of the, 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 the first one that you read, I think I'm right in saying that the teacher student paragraph, I think that's one paragraph, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and when, 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 when you look at your pages, they are very densely packed. Although light, in some ways, like, like sourdough, the stuff we've all been baking um, during lockdown, they have that quality both of density and of, of lightness, which is incredibly um, attractive. You report speech, but you never use direct speech, and your characters remain nameless. What is going on? So, um, a few different things, I think. To take first the, the sort of nameless quality of the characters. Um, I mean, they're distinct. I'm not saying they belara. I'm not saying we don't know who they are. I'm just saying that you choose not to, and that's a choice that make, you provoke us to think why. Yeah, so, um, you know, and everything I have to say about that is back formation. Like the real reason why is just that mm -hmm. I feel resistance to it as I'm writing. And mm -hmm. so anything I say about it is sort of me trying to understand that resistance. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, one of the things what is I that? What is, what is that? What, what, where, where does that resistance go? I mean, do you, would you put down a name and then say that's not who they are, that name doesn't describe them? Or, or is it just the, the very act of naming them which you're resistant to? Yeah, the very act of naming them, um, mm -hmm. I have a resistance to. They don't have names in my head. Um, like their names are the initials. Um, okay. You know, to a certain extent, I think, like I said this, but this is a book about intimacy. It's also a mm -hmm. book that is about confession and about people sort of telling deep secrets um, and sometimes, um, you know, secrets that they haven't told before. So I hope there's a sense of kind of protectiveness towards the characters and then mm -hmm. also, I mean, this is a book that's written both out of and into communities in which intimacy and anonymity are not contrary forces. Of and course, they're completely connected. Yeah, and in some sense to sort of try to bring the reader into that and to hopefully show the reader um, that, you know, a name is not a necessary container for intimacy. And then there's also the fact that, you know, after music, um, my education in literature was in lyric poetry. And um, there's a way in which, you know, there's um, something that is sort of um, reverent of the lyric, I think, in resisting names that sort of wants these characters to be at once fully individuated, sort of socially situated. Mm. And also lyric voices, you know, and the lyric voice, which um, I, I studied with the great poetry critic, Helen Bindler, who used to talk about you know, the lyric I being an I, being a subject position that anyone can occupy. And so to try to engage that tension between, which is the tension that animates all art, I think, between particular mm. particularity and universality. Something about that, I think, is also part of that resistance. Okay, so that's, that's the namelessness. Let's talk about those, James, the, the Jamesian kind of, for want of a better word, pounding of sentences together. Um, where sometimes by the end of reading a paragraph, we've it's like, oh my god, it's just it just keeps you know it, ju it just keeps going. Why why that? And also, I'm going to come back to it. Why why don't you give the characters their own voices? Why do you insist on mediating them through our narrator and reported speech? 
Yeah, so to take the second point first, I mean, so, I mean, just the project that I'm engaged in, um, which is not like a project that I would want all art to engage in, but I mm -hmm. think it's a project that art can engage in, is trying to put on the page what thinking feels like, and is a mm -hmm. feeling, you know, a, a, an experience of immersion in consciousness. Um, so, I mean, you know, one thing, not having quotation marks, it is a way of sort of folding these voices into, it's a way of, of sustaining that sense of immersion. So there's that. Um, there's also the fact that like, I do sort of find conventional punctuation of um, direct speech in English, like just a little embarrassing because you know, it, like, <laughs> you know, like it's a convention of realism, like as though uh, I, am I am notating reality in a realistic way. Of course, realism is just a set of conventions that we all but, agree not to but see. Garth, you, you, but, you, but you do the sex realistically, more realistically than anybody else I've ever known. I mean, the act of a, a cock being, you know, a hand being spat on, lubing it up, putting it in a bum, you know, that is something I've never read about more realistically. So you're happy to do realism there, but not in the dialogue. What well, is but that I about, think, really? I mean, I would say that this dialogue is actually more realistic. I mean, you know, <laughs> if you, like, her brains are wired in such a way. If you look at a transcript of yourself speaking, uh, you do not recognize your voice on the page. I'm sure that that's true. At a transcript of yourself speaking, you almost can't understand. Our brains are wired in such a way that we, we filter out huge amounts of the actual sounds, the literal sounds that are coming out of our mouths. So mm -hmm. whenever we use, like the speech that we put in fiction is always processed speech. And there's a way that to put quotation marks and say, this is a little piece of reality. Like these are the actual sounds coming out of someone's, like that feels radically unrealistic to me. So that's okay. another reason I reject it. And then paragraphing, I think has more to do, I mean, in part there is that immersive quality that I think mm -hmm. paragraphs give, but in part also it's musical. And, you know, I didn't realize the extent to which this is the case until someone who I respect very much, who is um, the, the woman who edits my fiction at The New Yorker, um, she re-paragraphed a story because the copy editors were pushing back because those New Yorker little columns yeah. were like, really oppressive. And I said, well, okay, I'll look at it. And she said, so I re-paragraphed, see if you can live with this. And I reread the story, it was an entirely different story. And I realized what it felt like, it felt like the chord changes were in the wrong place. Like I was listening to, I was listening to a piece of music where like cadence and chord, chord change didn't line up and it was the most bizarre experience. So there's a way mm. in which it's also musical. You know, these are not logical paragraphs. These mm -hmm. are affective, emotional, musical paragraphs. Yes, and the, the arrangement of the, the chapters or the stories or the songs in, in the whole is entirely musical. I felt that very much the first time that I read it. It's in, interesting the level in which I felt it, and then on, on rereading it was able to unpick it and feel you there behind it conducting it, which was, which was very exciting. You finish um, the, the song cycle um, with our narrator not having yet gone from Bulgaria. He's, he's, he's still thinking um, about leaving. Have you finished with him yet as a character and have you finished with Bulgaria yet as a place? Are we going to meet him again and say, I don't know, Iowa? <laughs> so um, Bulgaria, you know, after two books um, that were are devoted to Bulgaria, you know, one of the things that surprised me as I was finishing Clean This, and I, I actually can never remember what was the last chapter I wrote, but one of the last chapters was Decent People, which is the protest. And in that, you know, this protest circles the city. And that chapter was like hugely longer than it is in the book. I think because I wanted to say goodbye, I knew it was going to be my last time mm. writing that cityscape. And I wanted to say, it was like goodbye moon. It was like goodbye, you know, statue yeah. of Goddess, Wobodito, goodbye. Yeah. And I remember my agent read it and my agent was like, maybe we could condense this <laughs> a little bit. So, you know, I, but I did feel my imagination detaching from this place um, that I still, you know, is a place that I will, I mean, Sofia will be my favorite city my whole life. Um, but I felt, I did feel that sort of my need to write about it, that that door was closing. Really? Um, I don't think I'm, you know, so this narrator, I mean, I do imagine this narrator moving forward of the next book I write, I think, um, will be set in Kentucky. Um, and so, you know, I am attracted to writers whose projects, like writers who produce 
sort of autonomous, well-made books that you know have a kind of formal integrity, um, but that also are porous and speak to each other. And mm-hmm. um, you know, cleanness and what belongs to you are obviously that way. And this next book I write, I mean, I hope it will have the same sense of porousness, and in some ways, you know, will sort of drift, intermingle with um, maybe the middle section of what belongs to you, returning to that landscape. Okay, our narrator says that he's going back to America, but he's not going home. America doesn't feel like home to him. And I wonder if America feels right now like home to you. And also I know that you've been going back to Louisville and you've discovered a queerness there. You discovered, for example, that um, young men donned green carnations for Oscar Wilde's very famous speaking tour. So I wondered if you could tell us a bit about that. Does America feel like home to you? Um, and what has that process of discovering the queerness of Kentucky been like? Yeah, home is a really vexed term for me. And, um, you know, nowhere really feels like home to me. Um, America does not feel like home. Iowa doesn't feel like home. Um, you know, in some sense, you know, that, that when anyone asks me what, where home is, um, I sort of fumble, I don't have an answer. Um, but certainly one of the places um, central to my sense of myself is Kentucky. And this was the great gift of, of publishing What Belongs to You. One of the great gifts of publishing What Belongs to You was that I went back to Kentucky for the first time in over a decade. and. Um, you know, found myself, uh, I had a kind of reaction to the place, this place that I left when I was 16, very much feeling like I was fleeing a place where I would die if I stayed. And I think I think I would have, I think that's true. Um, and also feeling like I knew everything I could ever possibly want to know about Louisville, that sort of there was nothing this place had to teach me or nothing to learn about it. And then I went back, and saw a very different city, a city that's changed a lot in 20 years. Um, and also I had changed a lot. And I had a kind of, the kind of chemical reaction to it um, that I had to Sophia. And I had a kind of reaction, you know, this sense that actually, I don't know anything about this place. This place is infinitely mysterious to me. I need a book to think about it. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things that I was led to, again, from people talking to me about what belongs to you was uh, this extraordinary LGBT historical archive. And I, at the University of Louisville, where I spent about six weeks, a couple of summers ago, going through these incredible archives. And yes, discovering this history where like, I mean, it should not be a surprise. Like queer people are everywhere and therefore queer history is everywhere. But it's also true that um, people have worked so hard to efface that history. And people have worked so hard you know, when I was 14, when I desperately needed that history in Kentucky, mm. I had no access to it. The whole world was organized to keep me from it. And so to find that now and everything, yes, from those men, you know, there was enough of a queer community in Louisville in the 1880s that, you know, these men showed up at Oscar Wilde lectures with these carnations, and that was reported in the Courier Journal, you know. in Incredible. The and then also, you know, discovering the history of the 90s and of the early AIDS crisis in, in Kentucky, which is history that, you know, there's been this extraordinary AIDS revisitation and a sort of attempt to think about the early AIDS crisis in America, especially, and to think, but not only America, Europe too, and mm-hmm. to think about, you know, how to tell that history. Well, in America, I mean, almost all of that work, which has been extraordinary. I mean, David Francis, How to Survive, oh, Play, you know, um, t- Tim Murphy's Christadora. I mean, these incredible yeah. Rebecca Mackay's book. Um, almost all of those, with the exception of Rebecca's book, um, have taken place on the coasts. You know, mm-hmm. and Rebecca's book takes place in Chicago. Chicago. So this story of like, what was it like to be a 16-year-old kid from rural Eastern Kentucky um, who had HIV? Like I realized I have no, I have no idea what that was like, even though I was there then. And, you know, I was convinced that my future was as an HIV positive person. Um, I had no access to these extraordinary AIDS activists in Louisville, Kentucky. I had no access to it. So discovering this has been like, 
it has transformed my childhood and the geography of my childhood into something that I don't just have to run away from, something that maybe I can reclaim. Yes, I think that's very powerful, the idea that after a certain point in our lives as queer people, we can perhaps stop running from something and perhaps towards. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, um, I have a similar relationship with Glasgow, um, and, you know, and I wrote about that in, in Maggie and Me, and that was, you know, foolishly, I thought that would be about putting a, drawing a line underneath experience, and I realised it was kind of opening a door to experience and telling all these people to march through. But um, I, a few months ago, I did a, an LGBTQ walking tour of Glasgow, um, and here in a city that I had escaped to as a queer teenager, underage, driving my way into nightclubs, here was a history that I had no idea had existed. A history, as you say, that was completely unavailable to me, but nevertheless was present. Um, and it, that has helped change you know, my attitude to, to that city um, and, to, yeah, and to my own past, I think. Which, who knows what that will, who knows what that will open up creatively. We'll see. Eager to see. <laughs> Eager to see. We'll see. Um, let me just look and see. I have some questions for you. I'm going to ask you the first one. Um, from um, uh, I'm not going to say her name in case she doesn't want me to say it. It doesn't say if she wants me to or not, but I'm just going to say, I'm a university lecturer and my lockdown has been spent teaching students literature remotely. Given that the protagonist of Cleanness is a teacher of literature, what is your sense of the relationship between teaching and intimacy? Going back to that paragraph that you read earlier. Uh, well, I mean, I can say, you know, so I was a high school teacher for seven years, um, three of those years in the US and four of them in Bulgaria. And I remember my first year teaching high school. And maybe the, the biggest surprise to me was how much I loved my students. And, um, you know, all of a sudden I went from this life as a PhD student where my most important relationships were with books and like the most urgent things in my life were my own thoughts about those books. Yeah. To, you know, being kind of intricate in the lives and destinies of 70 adolescents. And, <laughs> you know, and it was such a shock to me, like how eager they were to seek out that intimacy, how eager they were to talk about their lives. And, um, and just how implicated I felt in their lives. Yeah. Um, and then it was also, you know, as an openly queer person working with young people, both in the States and even more intensely in Bulgaria, um, I knew how crucial it was to have distance um, and to draw these, you know, uncrossable lines. Um, yeah. And that in some sense, you know, the, the dilemma of teaching for me was trying to figure out, you know, how can I be close enough open enough to them to be useful but also how do i keep this distance and you know that is also crucial to my being useful like if i just am their friend i'm not useful to them and so this relationship of intimacy to usefulness as an educator um yeah it it was a really difficult vexed thing but certainly i mean i think that can be an an incredibly intense, intimate experience. I think of my own relationships with my teachers, that choir teacher who actually just passed away a couple of weeks ago. Um, Sorry. You know, he, like, he saved my life, you know? I mean, he just plucked this kid out. You know, I had just failed high school. I just failed freshman English. The first semester of freshman English, I had failed. Like, I was a kid just utterly headed for the trash heap. And he just plucked me out and gave me art, you know? And also he was the first adult to treat me as though my life had any value. And that was, that was, you know, a very important part of the education, but he gave me art, you know, he gave me opera. Like he gave, he radically redrew the horizon of possibility across my life. I mean, what could be more intimate than that? No, nothing. How did he make his, or did he make his queerness known to you? Um, And was he, was he, was he a teacher in that way as well? So actually, um, he was not queer. Amazing. He was not openly queer. Joyful. And also, and I have no reason to believe he was queer. He never said anything like that. Um, so, you know, it was, it's also interesting that that was not explicitly a part of it, but what he gave me in giving me mm-hmm. opera was yeah. access to queer culture in a way that mm-hmm. I had no access to in Kentucky. Um, mm-hmm. So it was a queer education in that sense. Yeah. Yes, I remember the straight English teacher who insisted that I read The Colour Purple, not just because we were studying in a class, but really read it and really understand it. And I, 
Um, and yes, um, that was that was heroic and life-saving in its way. Um, I'm just looking at some of the other questions um, that I've been sent. Um, here we have one which is, um, okay, this is a quote which is a bit semi-academic, involves a quote from Sarah Ahmed, who used to teach at Lancaster, where I went. And Wait, Sarah, Sarah Ahmed. Ahmed? Did you say yeah, Sarah Ahmed? Oh my gosh, it's not from Sarah Ahmed. It's a quote that quotes Sarah Ahmed. Oh, okay, I was going to say, wow, you're an inspiration. No, I, I've, I've, I haven't seen her since she, since I turned in a late women's studies paper for her um, in 1999. But, um, but, but she's around. Anyway, she wrote, the moment of queer pride is a refusal to be shamed by witnessing the other as being ashamed of you. Um, and the question in relation to that is, your characters seem to ricochet between pride and shame and defiance. Where would you put your characters? and yourself as a writer on this continuum. So that continuum of pride, shame, defiance. Um, I think we'll focus on your right, you as a writer rather than the characters just now so we can be limited in the answer. How do you feel in that, on that continuum? So, I mean, this is another one of these dichotomies, you know, and in some sense in the book explicitly, um, shame, and a, shame and then a rhetoric of pride line up with ideas mm. of filth and cleanness. And again, um, you know, uh, I mean, I guess you know, one of the things that interests me is what it means to be someone who was taught certain lessons about your life. Mm -hmm. um, as a kid in Kentucky, I was taught that, um, you know, the only meaning queerness could have was shame. Mm -hmm. uh, I have utterly rejected that, that lesson. As I said, you know, everything I value about my life, I owe to queerness. Um, and yet, I had to make myself around that lesson, you know? That lesson was not something that I could ignore. It was not something that I had the equipment to resist as a kid. Like homophobia was the air I breathed as a kid growing up in Kentucky. I think it's still the air queer people breathe all around the world. Mm -hmm. And so like, it's all we have to make ourselves out of. So, you know, there's a dangerous suggestion in the rhetoric of pride that like there is a real self, an authentic self, a true self that we could arrive at if we just scrub away shame. That to me is deadly because it can make it impossible to talk about shame. It can make shame, acknowledging shame, shameful. Um, yeah, can guilty. You're guilty of being ashamed. And so, you know, the question, and also I just think it's false. I don't think there is an authentic self under that. You know, like, I mean, mm -hmm. when my father called me a faggot, when I was 14, when my father called me a faggot and said I wasn't his son and kicked me out of the house, like that was an utter laceration in my life. Like that was a wound, I don't get to scrub that, like I had to form my life around that. Like of hmm. course, you know, that wound determined much of the shape of what I would become. How could it be otherwise? Hmm. The question is not how do I scrub that away? The question is how can I make use of it? The question is, you know, how can I take this thing that was meant to be pure negation, that was meant to silence me, that was meant to make me not exist, how can I take that? And as queer people have throughout our entire history, how can I take stigma and shame and make it productive of beauty? How can I make it productive of sociality? Of so, of, uh, how can I make it productive of solidarity? You know, um, how can I make it productive of pleasure? If I can take that word faggot out of my father's mouth and in the aesthetically framed space that is, say, an s and encounter, put it in the mouth of a lover, and that same word that was meant to be a weapon, I put in a new syntax that makes it a technology for the production of pleasure, that seems to me an extraordinary tool of survival. So one of the things this book wants to think about is not you know, how do we get closer to pride on the spectrum of pride and, sh and shame? It's instead, how do we take the fullness of who we are and refuse to repress, refuse to deny that fullness, but instead try to put as many of our contradictions, how to, how to put them into a kind of form that can make them useful, that can make them productive, that can make them something that is not just, not just things I survive, um, but things that allow me um, to, thrive. Again, to sort of do everything, everything in my life that, that seems to me to have value.
And that's what queer people have always done. The whole history of queer art is taking stigma and turning it into style. The whole history of queer politics is taking stigma and turning it into solidarity. And one of the histories of queer desire is taking stigma and turning it into pleasure. That seems to me something to be championed and something that um, certainly I want to explore in my fiction. This book troubles all those dichotomies. It's like standing between two pillars and pushing at them and shaking them and bringing eventually the whole house of it down. Cleanness is incredible. I know it's a book I'm going to be going back to, you know, my whole life. Um, there are so many parts of it that I've taken out and, and, and written down. It's a book that I wish I had found or I wish that had existed um, when, when, when we were of the age, when you were in Louisville and when I was in Glasgow. It's a bush. You know, can you imagine how different our creative lives would have been, our queer lives, our sex lives would have been? It's really an interesting thought. It's an incredible book. Um, I am just, I'm just going to applaud you because I'm going to applaud you and everybody else is applauding you from, from all around the world right now. It's just absolutely incredible. Um, thank you so much for sharing that with us. And I know we didn't get to all the questions and I'm going to stay on in the chat and chat to people on you can if you want as well, Garth. But, um, but please join me in saying just the hugest thank you to the most beloved and talented and genius Garth Greenwell. Thank you, thank you Garth. Thank you. So much. You can disappear now or stay in the chat if you want. I'm going to be in the chat. I'll talk to somebody there. Bye bye.